0: So, so I've been thinking about the, the, this urbanization since you talked about it, because in at least uh, the vernacular beliefs, there's a countervailing uh, force that, that urban environments end up being more tolerant, more open to, to the other, less us and them, so because there's more... Interaction with people who are not like you. I mean that's certainly true in the United States. United States politics is very urban versus uh suburban. So how how do I just how do I justify that with your I think very compelling case that, that urbanization forces these uh, mimetic crises? Um,
1: a good question, and I think it's it's just because those increased ways of communication within the urban space uh, makes us all more the same. And that's, and that's when we long ever more for the same goods, because we are ever more aware of what is going on. Uh, around us, and that's why we want exactly to be like the others, and even uh, tramp over them. That, that, that's my approach to to, to it. You.
2: Um, I wonder whether you've looked at the treatments of the other in science fiction aspects of this. I haven't yet, but having gotten into this. Uh, your various, uh, are various literary ideas. that Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank talk Thank you. Um, question to Thank um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. your you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank you. you. say that Thank
1: uh, yeah, I, I would say that yeah fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just yeah. yeah. simply <laughs> okay. um,
2: so I have a question for Baseball. Um have you have at uh at evaluation? And I was wondering if some of what we have seen
3: is potentially dependent on the type of goods that are sold and bought. Because you find anything, anyway, from paper clips to,
2: you know, for uh, example. I was wondering if there's if you have seen any difference between the type of feedback and the type of uh, recognition and trust that people.
3: Uh, actually build it for themselves, or rely on to, uh, to do their mm-hmm. So, in the three studies uh, we have conducted, we have looked at three different goods, uh, which are <laughs> okay. three different um, products, mm-hmm. uh, DVDs, uh, mobile phones, and these memory cards. And uh, they are similar, they're very small, they're easy to ship, so, and their quality is relatively, they're not very complex, they can be verified, maybe the mobile phones are a bit, so, um, and their behavior is very similar, so, um, but I agree, if you have collectibles or, um, how do you say, antiques, yeah? So, there uh, you might find differences. For instance, also with regard to herding, I would say people would be much more careful with uh, bidding on them because that would potentially reveal information they have about the product and so on and so forth. But in the products we looked at, there are not much.
2: Just as a quick point, if I may. I, we have collected data from the so
3: called anonymous marketplace where people sell and buy like, heroin and also completely use it. Those that look for them, their feedback is mandatory. So you could
2: probably look at it. I mean, you can take it offline and I can tell you where to find the data, but we it would it. be it's interesting to see the same type of business. I'm say that you and Nate are going to look I noticed that men and non men rather than human and non-human. Does that imply that women are self-humans now? I don't think that those quotes imply that. But of course, historically, women have often been considered as... as human rights, for example. And a lot of the time, human rights really mean male rights. That's correct. About women's rights. That's correct. are separate rights. That's right. Yeah. And so it kind of implies um, that you women know, are also still in human house just
4: now, and you don't have to deal with it. Mm.
2: No, you don't have to, you, you simply have to be put in a category. Yes. Yes. Absolutely right. And that was just a little bit. It's a sense. Like, uh, for a day, the honor and the feedback that you've had in front so there's. I noticed, without understanding, so I'm just letting you decide, the, the marked difference between the feedback that you get on eBay and the feedback you get, for example, on the sellers on Amazon, where in eBay, the people buying are also rated and have their own verification, and there's a kind of piece for that. I will give you a good mark because they give me the a good mark, whereas on Amazon, the buyer doesn't get the mark, and therefore, you see a lot more negative feedback from buyers on Amazon than you see on eBay. Where people just want to be, have, have their own free market. Yes, uh,
3: that's what the historical fact. So, yeah, so that's where it's very interesting because eBay has changed uh, its reputation system in 2008. So uh, buyers, sellers cannot retaliate negative feedback anymore. And there were different changes exactly because of that, and um, that's where it is important to, to study and understand human behavior behind behind the patterns we observe from from data uh, to to understand how to design best design the system to elicit truthful feedback, and um, and the design change in e-based reputation system was a result of, of such reasoning. <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, uh, David, yeah. Uh, David, Alice, um, here um, I was struck by, I was thinking about things were developing in my head while the this discussion thing going, about your uh, use of the Great Chain of Being idea, which you stand on more in the paper, that a little than you did in this discussion here. And um, I wonder if it's, I wonder where that, why that of particular idea of, of the structure of nature started to succeed, when in fact... When that idea came became very current in the sixteenth and seventeenth century, especially in the speaking times in Britain, it wasn't by any means certain that this idea was the, the way things were amongst people. So I'm thinking particularly of um, Daston and Park's work on one in the Order of Nature, where they look at the, the idea of these marvels that you know the dog faced men yeah. in Asia and who well, are treated quite as if they are human beings. They're just yes. human beings with dog legs, Or, you know, human beings with tails or big yes. feet or and there's a whole sense in some of those older books that, you know, humanity can be multiple and varied and, you know, multiple, it isn't a sense of the uncanny, that these God-faced people are, you know, fundamentally freaks, that just they're there, and they are different. Um, we don't know much about them. In some cases, there was some writing about how these were actually God-fearing people. I mean, yes, I mean, that's God, true. I mean, supposed to be ruling the God-faced men. So I wonder whether, as a lot of J.R. General had a point but how did this... Well a different hierarchical idea of you know humans are monster or whatever, you know, humans are sub humans are monster come about over starts to dominate over this more multi-form idea of humanity. I, I don't know if that's the right way to conceive it. So I think there's there's a distinction between formalizations of the notion of a hierarchy of nature mm-hmm. and a kind of pre theoretical intuitive thought about the world. Right. Now, what we find in the, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century are formalizations, where you have these schemes, these diagrams, and so on. And these were explicit metaphysical frameworks. The way of thinking, however, uh, strikes me from everything I've able but it's far more widespread, right? So the fact is that human beings make distinctions. They make distinctions about the permissibility of treating, the differential permissibility of, of, in the treatment of different kinds of things. And I think that's probably necessary for any sort of moral system at all. So the, uh, the, uh, the, the Plinian monsters are, are, are formal and explicit notions of the inhabitants of four far-flung areas of the earth whereas our moral psychology I think is 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 more implicitly driven by the uh, the hierarchicalization of kinds of things which we find active in humanization if that yeah. scratch, scratches your ears yeah my fault is on that kind of, well I, I just wondered if you could um, say a little bit more on how you can shift away from a, an uncanny reaction to something. And, you know, isn't it isn't only just a, sort of an exposure and taking a different moral stance towards that person, or is it harder than that? I mean, once, once people have that uncanny reaction to someone or to a group, how can it be undone? I wish I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> just to directly follow on from that, I'm wondering if it's it's not just a simple linear process that might be cyclical um, I'm thinking of saying the same example of the conflict of me scarcely, where people previously lived together in relative peace for hundreds of years then became visual enemies. And social psychology would explain it perhaps not necessarily if they dehumanized but they certainly recategorized them as other. So, Rather than being seen in Yugoslavia, so they were then categorized as Bosnians and Krav, sort of random as and and then suddenly, yeah, so that and then it's why like, so genocide happens incredibly quickly. Oh, yeah, so, so we have this remarkable capacity, I think because of our uh, conceptual horsepower, to include and exclude. Would be the lines between so called in groups and out groups are incredibly flexible. Unlike, uh, say, what we see in in non human primates, where the local breeding group is us and everyone else is them, well, we can expand and contract these things. But rendering people other is necessary, but it's by no means sufficient for dehumanizing. There's really something else added there, or rather, something else
4: subtracted. (laughs) We You start from a, a statement of fact, namely that the uh, cruelty displayed to the uh, hated group is over and what the portrayal of them as subhuman would call for. Yeah. Right. So, my first uh, sub question is: is there any. On which basis do you say that this is excessive cruelty? Uh, uh I, I may just put the second one. But suppose you are right and it is exceptional to the Then I, I I'm not sure I understood your uh, explanation of why this should be the case. The first uh, social scientist major explanation would be cognitive, reduction of cognitive dissonance. Right, so the more outrageous you will in the face of evidence, right, like that Bosnia look like carrots and Jews look like the other Germans. So the more you differentiate them despite the appearance, the more it, in some way you have to uh, reduce the tension that this puts on, on your own uh, normal property function also. Right? If they they were completely different, uh, and this was evident, you wouldn't do that. But the closer they are, the more cruel you have to be to justify your own belief. That would be the prediction of the theory of
2: of of Leon Festinger. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I follow your explanation. For you to claim something
4: which is so utterly false. Yes. You generate that tension between what you play in the pattern involves, right? So you end
2: up uh, overdoing the cruelty to reduce that tension. But how does overdoing the cruelty reduce the, the tension? It justifies the fact that, they, you know, they, uh, I mean, I know, I don't know, I don't know. There's actually, I mean, that's, that's, that's a problem, but there's an additional one. For the sake of brevity, I had to leave a lot out. Alvia makes the point, point I think he's quite correct, that in, in cases, we can take the Nazi case again, the humanity of the uh, humanized population is implicitly affirmed in their treatment. I mean, you don't humiliate rats. Like you humiliate Jews, right? And so we have this strange combination of of ca- categorizing them as subhuman, but implicitly affirming certain aspects of their of their humanity, and that suggests that there are, there are two things going on simultaneously. And then there's a body of rather interesting work which suggests that when we have these two when we when we have these crossings of metaphysical or transgressions of metaphysical boundaries, this elicits a peculiar kind of attitude of art, which I'm then suggesting may itself be motivating for cruelty. For ext- for extraordinary. Todd. Mm-hmm. So, Rick. Um, so I wanted to talk about your pushback on on the slide there, but a um, I'm wondering if like what you're finding in these surveys is really sort of a matter of what your objective function is, and that it's it's kind of I guess it's not too surprising that. Now that we're in this world of automated, automatic updates and people aren't expected to really know what's going on, that they have less understanding, right? So, you know, the fact that this is no longer a assigned to them, you know, they're not going to perform as well when we ask them questions about it because they don't have to deal with it as often. But but they do. just, but just because they're, just because they're not going to do as well, and they might sometimes have some kind of misconfigurations, the overall outcome could still be better in this case because most people have the correct configuration. Um, that so I mean, what what do you think about
5: that? Uh, so well, one point I'll make is we do frequently ask that. So when, when Heartbleed came out, we asked a lot of people to update very quickly, uh, and a lot of people didn't understand why or what they had to do. They've never had, that's a hard decision for them to make. Is it more important to upgrade and deal with Heartfleet, or is it more important to the fact that I've got five applications open and I'm in the middle of things? Which one of those is more important? That's a hard decision for people to make. We haven't. They don't, they, they had a lot of trouble making. So the idea is that updates yeah. in one context, like that, there were some client-side issues with Heartfleet also. So the, the issues with uh,
2: Updating in general. Basically. So you don't have to update Windows anymore, so we have to do other updates. more of something we're not prepared to deal with. Is that kind of what you're saying?
5: Yeah, so another example I during during the data collection for my study, iTunes 11 came out. Um, that was really interesting because it was a complete user interface change. No. Yeah, they redid the entire user interface. And so many of my subjects actually said, "I." so 11.0.1 had already come out also, which was a security update. iTunes actually includes WebKit, which is a full browser inside of it. And uh, most of the subjects had installed 11, realized this was a major change, and then decided not to install the next one. Even though that was the year, I was updated to change the phone. She spent like the next six months complaining to me about not knowing what I'm doing in our phone anymore and never mind
2: that it's all a good Yes. <laughs> for the one one on And sometimes I mean there's more dramatic changes in the uh like Lover, which is for example I have a Linux uh, machine which is a video recorder and every time there is an update on the tournament which happens at least every month, he stops recording. Right. So yeah. I'd rather just not have the list for now I've written myself a script but in most cases I do not even know what's going on. With me. Yep. Right? I don't understand the they do. I certainly don't want the system to change. I, mean, I think
5: it's okay things going into background and fix themselves, but they don't
2: know how to fix this. And, and how how do you understand the users? What should people do? What's the sense of this thing? I just want my make
5: it work. So, one of the things that you did is because of the frequency of the updates that you had to deal with, you were able to write a script to get around that.
2: Uh, only because I have a PhD in security.
5: So, I mean, I don't, one of the things that I've been pushing back for a while in my work is that, so you have a PhD in computer security. My mom has two degrees in accounting. She's definitely not a security person, but she's not... It's stupid. She's really a very smart person who's very capable of doing things. She just doesn't spend a lot of time with the computer. But when she needs to, she can figure out some very interesting things. Um
2: she's expecting expecting your mother clever
5: which maybe she has to learn how to write a script to fix the stupid updates to bring her computer. So she and in, I go home and I find some really interesting things installed on her computer, some of which make no sense and some of which have are some really interesting workarounds. Um people do come up with some really interesting things and by giving them opportunities to practice, we might be able to enable them to do that better.
3: Frankly, I don't think PhDs PhD is a bit of security as necessary or sufficient for anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you have a second question? I have a second question for them, which is if this time, and also other times, if you've told us insightful things about how in order to persuade someone to give someone else, you have to be humanized. Uh, warfare have, has been with us since the beginning of our human society, and so what happens to Germans and other people who order people to or kill other people? Do they go to the genocide school and they rebrand themselves every time? Do they study how to do that? Right. So first, I don't think you have to humanize others to persuade people to kill them. What you have to do is is disable ambitions against killing sufficiently. And dehumanization is one way of doing that. It's not the only way of doing that. So, you have to look at things on a case-by-case basis here. Do they study how it's been done before? Well,
0: propagandists certainly did. Yeah, first. A uh, bacterium. So, th- what you're describing is very common in 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 safety, lots of areas. As as bad incidents go down, we get less good deal of them. Whether whether it's fires or whether it's alarms in nuclear power plants, and again and again, we have this problem. Normally, we try to solve it by practice, by drilling. Now, this becomes less easy. Because when you're in this environment, mm-hmm. it's an ancillary task. Yeah. We're, not, we're not training nuclear power plant operators on what to expect in alarms. This is something that, when what Angela was talking about, it, 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 just, it just bothers you, annoys you, you want to get it out of the way. So what, and I don't know if, if letting people make easy decisions
5: is going to be the answer. I don't know.
0: Drilling is going to be the answer. What
5: do we have? What, what do we have next? So I'm not sure drilling is necessarily going to be the answer. So one of the impl- interesting implications of this is, a, especially in the computer security community, there's a lot of kind of lamenting about how bad users are at security. But then they also have this "keep the users out of the loop" philosophy, which could be the cause of the reason <laughs> that people are so bad at security. Um, I'm not entirely sure what to do next, but I think. It's not necessarily drilling as much as being having them involved in actual real decisions might actually be more helpful. Because there are a lot of them that we make for them.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, Purdue, you said there was something fundamentally
1: different, which is such a teaser, something fundamentally different between identifying someone as in the out group yes. as not one of us and, and dehumanization. Yes.
2: And then you stopped. Okay. He well, well, well <laughs> but For you know, I could go on and on and on. Uh, I've been absorbed in this stuff for years. Yeah, I mean, uh, in, in most cases, uh, we don't it works. We, we, uh, insofar as we're biased against them, we see them as perhaps our moral inferiors or as more homogenous than we are, the well-known social psychological biases. But that's quite a different proposition from regarding them as categorically distinct from us. But uh, when we put them in the other category, yeah they're
0: categorically distinct, right? When I, yeah, what else? Yeah, yeah they're, that they're, question about, okay. well, okay, we're willing to kill people in the outgroup even if we're not dehumanizing them. I, I, I think the other people are questioning as well. What is it that you can only do if
2: it's an easy as I as I said to Frank, I don't think there's anything you can only do if it's... It's, 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 it's a way. It's a very important way that we manage to disable inhibitions against lethal Yeah, I mean, sublethal, but by no means the only one. Yeah, yeah uh, I might have some evidence, uh, very recent evidence, that sort of I think, supports what you're saying. Uh, this was collected by my friend, and I'm co-authoring it. It's currently under review. But basically what, uh, what, what he collected the data, so what he did, was, uh, I was a mechanical test study. And participants were evaluating moral decisions made by four different agents. And so there was a human, uh, a huge robot, This was an Asimov robot. Mm-hmm. And then two, uh, two uncanny robots, one was a bit more uncanny than the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the, the, there were trolleyology, I, I mean, trolley by vignettes which were evaluated. And uh, there was like a moral uncanny effect which we observed. So, uh, moral uh, decisions made by these uncanny robots were evaluated as less moral than those made by the other two. Robots. Oh, so very cool. This wow. yeah, <laughs> was observed only for deontological decisions, though, so not for utilitarian yes. decisions. So, uh, yeah. is. so, so. Yes, I guess it's something we wrong. Yes. I would love to leave yeah. in period. period. Yeah. yeah. Um, question, uh, question for Rich. So yeah. uh so for training the effective there should be some sort of feedback that you made the right decision or you made the wrong decision. Uh-huh. Like with so the security update like the actual benefit is So like with I, why, like I'm like you know or if I just play shop I hear that it sounds bad. Yes. Uh, so like how do you like make sure that people are making, making the easy decisions that, that they get the correct feedback and learn the right things to
5: do? So one of the things I'll push back on that is they do get some feedback, it's just not complete. So they get feedback a lot of times about usability. So how easy this was, but did it work, did it screw things up. If I install this update, did it, did it completely screw up my machine? Uh, can I still play my music on iTunes or not? They get some feedback. They just don't get a complete set of feedback. Um, so one of the things that we could be working on is trying to uh, make the fee- find ways to make the feedback more complete, especially if in the cases where we could otherwise automate it. We can augment the feedback with what the, what we would have automated for. Um, so if we're if we we're going to automatically install an update and instead we ask them to install it to decide whether to install it manually, we can provide the what we would have automated in place as, as additional feedback. But the installment, sorry, the like the
3: benefit of the security update is it. still
2: completely, completely invisible. So so something like that. I had this. Help. Like, every once in a while when I did this, it, it broke my stuff, but I never really saw them. So, what we'll learn, the lesson
5: to infer from that is this is a waste of time and will probably screw, screw me up rather than Um it, it can. I mean, there's opportunities to, to provide that feedback during the update process. Uh, uh, people read a surprisingly large amount of the, the text that described what the updates were updating. Uh, <laughs> Tell me about specific updates that they remembered installing uh, in specific cases when they when they had to do it manually. Okay. So, you know, I am going to disagree with you actually, which is
2: unusual, but um, my belief is that people are taking a risk. And yeah, people are bad at taking risks. And if you think computer scientists think users are stupid, you should hang out with some doctors and talk about Asians. <laughs> you know, we re- we are are the people that we build software for do not regularly take it and accidentally off themselves. You know, I mean it's just it and, and the problem is, people, we're asking people to take risks in an update. It's not transparent. Mm-hmm. It's often not timely. Like um, Angela was saying, it's often, we must do this now. We're already we starting your computer now. And. Um, it's not actionable. It's like we either take this entire thing and oh by the way, the last time we did that we changed your whole user interface and we took half your songs that you ripped off the of CD. So we decided you didn't know, hey, maybe you'll give us a thousand dollars. Um so before we start asking people to make unnecessary decisions, I think we should work harder to respect them as partners in decision making. And if your doctor can do that, considering you know, all the stupid things we all do for our health, I mean, then I think we should be able to do that.
5: I mean, I, I agree, and one of the my big hesitations on this is asking for Asking users to do more work. This is actually kind of the exact opposite of what Angela was talking about earlier, uh, asking people to do more work. But one of the things I think, this, if we can structure the work around, as practice, that might actually make the work easier. I think Stewart's talk actually was really interesting in that, in that it, it showed how by getting the user to practice and building up the complexity, we can actually get them to do a lot more secure things than they, than they normally would be able to do.
2: Yeah, and are not to threaten the days of you if you didn't go to the gym, you go wrong, you know? That's not how professionals treat speak for people who are supposed to be healthy. So, first, a uh, brief, shameless self-promotion, but because several people were asking about it, um, the idea of dehumanization and its role in preparing troops, not for local aid um, massacres and genocide, in fact, trying to avoid that, but it is an interesting uh, aspect And I've done some work on that with a colleague who is in cognitive science and, and neuroscience. And we were looking at basically different ways that you can get the distance that you need in order to kill without crossing over to the most pernicious kinds of dehumanization. And uh, his name is Anthony Jack, Tony Jack. And uh, Tony and I have published on on that. So if anybody's interested, I can give. Yeah. yeah, and, and Shannon um, and Tony's work is, is really really awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I paid you to say that. Uh, and then I had a question.
0: Uh, really well, well spent. <laughs>
2: yeah. For um, uh, for Yoda. Did I say I was just wondering if you could comment at all. I don't know if you looked at this, but in terms of the shift towards urbanization, is there also a factor with um, it? environmental stresses as well, in terms of the uh, more compact people who have um, more intense environmental issues that, that occur as well, that can cause conflict like water scarcity, and um, resources, basically. Yeah, resources. Caric-caric capacity, yeah. Yeah. stresses uh, that occur
1: because people are compacting. Uh, yes and no. Uh, Yes, because um, or no? Actually, I begin with no. Uh, Because first of all, uh, uh, wars over resources in in IR are highly overrated and overestimated in in general, and they are not taking place on such a large scale uh, within uh, urbanization processes as well, compared to the international sphere. And and yes, in a kind of positive sense, that individual cities are doing more uh, to, let's say, or use this label to protect the environment uh, than their hosts, than the nation states. Uh, large cities are far more effective in, in, in banning, you know, different kinds of emissions and so on force uh, compared to nation states. Uh, so it would be an overall uh, positive example. Thank you. Um, to some
4: extent, Chad, already answered what I've said, but I do have some further thoughts I want to add to this.
2: Um, the uh, One of the issues that I think I has think been dealt with is, is the question of sovereigns and particular yeah. pressures that they have to deal with, which are not dealt with. Generally, by attempting to dehumanize the that. Um, but it also looks into how the um, military are being trained now by virtual
4: environments. Um, and that's a, an interesting one. I think David has uh, looked at the use of virtual environments mm-hmm. and how that might impact on it because there's the use the even of um, the, uh, the release of games
2: to encourage recruitment. Um, and um, so far, these have been very careful, this has been quite realistic. Um, and yes, within the game there are obviously a lot of militaristic games which do involve non humans. And I'm very careful saying non humans, which includes subhumans, but also can include games. Go back to my science fiction mm-hmm. question there. Yeah, no, I haven't looked, in, I have not looked into that at all. I think Rob Sparrow has. It. It has, Rob on, yeah, Rob Sparrow's
3: written on that. That so would be a good source. But that's specifically the game element. Yeah, Ah, okay. oh, I have a question. Eh? Uh, I have a question today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, the, in your talk, presented in style, you have to speak louder if you want to hear. Yeah, question. sorry. So um, I, I saw that they had this diagram on uh, one of the slides uh, where it goes up and then it goes down. And it was clear to me whether... It, so this was this supposed to um, picture a process? And yes, was it, is, it, is it an individual? Or do we have to understand it a, as a process in a population? No, this this is supposed to
2: illustrate the relationship between degrees of, of of similarity to human being and and attitudes towards the creature that is, or the 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 simulation, um, which is either very dissimilar or. Quite similar, but not quite there. So the idea is if you take like a really cute little robot like R2P2 and Star Wars, we feel quite comfortable with those. And we progressively construct robots that are more and more and more human-looking. This curve of familiarity goes up, one there, almost exactly right it drops, and that's what he calls the Uncanny Valley. That's when it starts getting creepy. And, and then the ascent, after the drop, consists of actual, uh, think, think either human beings or, or uh, simulations which are indistinguishable. Right. very fond of that, uh, because there are humans
4: who fall into the attempt yeah. Um, there are people with certain neurological disorders yeah. which, which change the way that, you know, if, if you've got a um, partial paralysis of your facial muscles, they're yeah. exactly the same. Um,
2: uh, um, reports are um, in people's reactions to them because you're expecting them to have an animated face mm-hmm. and they don't, or if, or if they've had severe skin damage yeah. to their face. Mm-hmm. Um, Add plastic surgery. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, some it's been proposed that the the uncanny valley reflects a uh, disease of worthiness disposition, uh, an evolved disease disposition. Yes. yes, and then, yes. that's a quite cool. Yeah. I think that's a bad theory. But... I haven't run out of questions. <laughs> Break Break early, boss? Yes, why don't we break early and get them back shortly on time.
3: Right, thank you.